Hello and welcome to the Unheard podcast. I'm Giles Fraser and I write a weekly column for Unheard. Six months ago, I visited the exhibition Living with the Gods at the British Museum and I absolutely loved it. Neil McGregor, former director of the British Museum, has now written a book to go along with the exhibition and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Neil to discuss this now. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Unheard podcasts. Enjoy listening. I'm here with Neil McGregor, which is a great joy for me. And uh, after seeing the exhibition, which I loved, and perhaps for full disclosure, I ought to say, uh, I I had some tiny part in which I had conversations with Jill Cook uh, about the, uh, who was the curator of uh, that uh, fabulous exhibition, uh, about the objects that went into it, but it was great. And then your book, which has come out of the exhibition. And it's fabulous. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> what, what I, what I, so let me just, this is a trick that I don't know quite how you pulled off. Because for me, most non-confessional writing about religion can be incredibly sort of dry and distant. You know, like writing about love in general rather than, you know, the love of a particular person. And yet you've managed to, you've managed to do a non-confessional book that, doesn't feel distant. Well, if that's true, and that was certainly what we were hoping to do, but if that's true, then I think that's because of the objects. Because the great thing about objects is that they take you immediately to people, to the people that made them, the people that used them. So you're, you're straight away in a particular case, and you can talk about the aspect of the belief, the aspect of the behaviour, as a person and how a person does it. And I think that's, that, that's, that's what I find so interesting about coming to these questions of abstract ideas through the things. Yes, it is particularity that makes it real, isn't it? And where that, maybe that's the problem with non-confessional uh, writing about, about religion. It's, it, it's about religion as such. I think that's right. The, the, other, the other great advantage, I think, of coming at this kind of subject, uh, how communities work through beliefs and rituals and how they're strengthened by beliefs and rituals. The, the other advantage of doing this through objects is that it immediately equalises the different belief systems of the world. So you don't have the problem that you're dealing with the great monotheisms with their sacred texts, revealed truths and words, and then the other religions which have no words and often ideas for which we wouldn't have words anyway. If you do it through the things, then they're all on an equal footing. The small Aboriginal Australian engagement in geographical terms, intense engagement with the spirits of the landscape and the ancestors and the place and the time and the great monotheisms, you can address them on an equal footing. And I think that's something that only objects allow you to do. And is very important. Though, of course, it, it, it may be the case that different religious traditions have different attitudes towards material culture, some more sympathetic than others. Well, they do. Um, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the case. And it's one reason why I think everybody who's ever worked in a museum that deals with religions uh, is always so concerned about how to present Judaism. <laughs> Because, uh, and Islam. Uh, Islam is in a sense easier because the calligraphic tradition is so highly developed on so many objects of different sorts that you can, the material culture of Islam is very extensive. Uh, that's 
much less the case, of course, in Judaism. But because the book and the exhibition are about rituals as much as about things and as ideas, the, that, that's a help because for the Jewish tradition, for instance, to be able to talk from the yad, the little silver hand that lets you find your place when you're reading the Torah, that takes you into the whole idea of what the reading of the Torah means. And the particular yad in the British Museum, which was given to the Plymouth and Synagogue, uh, the Plymouth the Synagogue in Plymouth, the oldest Ashkenazi English-speaking synagogue in the world, with the name of the donors on it, takes you to a moment. And why reading the Torah in Plymouth in the 18th century was such an important thing and what it meant for a community. So I think even in religious traditions that are as far removed from material culture as Judaism, things take you directly in because that's, I think, a very good example. When you hold that yad given by this German immigrant to Plymouth, you are with him in the synagogue reading the Torah singing the Lord's song in a strange land <laughs> and all that, that means for a community establishing itself somewhere else. Though, of course, there's an important strain in, well, I suppose in all the, the three great um, monotheistic faiths of iconoclasm and uh, of suspicion of material culture. Uh, is that something that you were able to find a way of addressing? Uh, because, of course, we have the the remnants of iconoclasm in the museum, that's really quite easy. Um, we can show... Uh, smashed up statues. Smashed up stuff. And of course, it's not only the three monotheisms that have suffered from it, um, because they have also smashed up the images of other religions. When you say suffered from it, I, is, there, is there something to be said for iconoclasm? I mean, as, as I mean, I... Look, as as the former director of the British Museum, <laughs> I know I'm not going to be able to persuade you that iconoclasm is a, you know, is a, is a great thing. And but but you know, when the, there is a sort of a renewal uh, or a sense, a religious sense that you should not overinvest in material. I think there's stuff. a great deal to be said for an aniconic tradition. I mean, I grew up in a Calvinist tradition, ah, right. so could hardly have been further from the image and the deepest suspicion. Uh, of any religious image. And I think there's a great deal to be said for a tradition that doesn't use images, although it's also, was in many ways, a great impoverishment. Um, that's not the same thing as being in favour of iconoclasm. <laughs> but yes, of course, iconoclasm has always been part of the, the necessary process or a necessary part of a process of renewal. What an irony that a, a good Calvinist boy ends up as the director of the British Museum. <laughs> did you have some? Did you have some change of heart about that? Uh, you know, the, the 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 Calvinism of your upbringing. Well, it wasn't so much about the Calvinism of the upbringing. What, uh, as I became interested in paintings, what became very clear was that a visual tradition, a painting tradition lets you explore the text differently and in a richer way in some dimensions than simply a literary, literal exegesis. And that you can actually... And I got very interested in the fact that the painted narrative of the Passion, for instance, 
become something very different from the written narrative. You brought that out in, in the exhibition of Seeing Salvation. A long time ago. If it is but a, an important for, exhibition. For, was, for, for, for the millennium in 2000. And I think that's a very... That's a, I think that's still something that hasn't that I, I would like to work more on. That I think has lots more to be said about it. How different a visual tradition is. It gets to different truths um, from the literal, from the literary one, the, the the one of the word, and the two together. I think I think are an enormous are an enormous enrichment. But they are different understandings through the two. They're both different kinds of exegesis. I think. Art and religion make natural bedfellows in, in a way, don't they? I wonder why that is. They're both an attempt to give shape to an idea and to move beyond the particular to the general. So I think they're, they're both like music. They're part of a desire to see pattern and find order and find what is enduring in the, in the transient. My my, um, my wonderful daughter, who's just finished a degree in fine art at Goldsmiths, um, she's covered in tattoos like lots of young people these days. And one of the tattoos she has on her arm is a quote from The Tempest from Prospero, which is, What seest thou else? And it seemed to me that it was both a very natural thing for an artist like her to have as a sort of motto, but also for me as her dad as a priest, it also felt like, Something I could own as a motto: <laughs> is that, is "What that, seest thou else? else?" You know, which is the, the point of all of all religious art, of course. Um, yes. And the one of the in the in the in the book, one of the things I got interested in was the different notion of the artist in, for instance, the tradition of icon painting. I mean, Rowan Williams, uh, as always, was wonderfully eloquent on that topic. But the notion there of an artist whose role is not to be present. An artist was only simply to replicate. It's not and, about this is a Leonardo. No, or quite, a, the, quite the reverse. This yes. is a particular notion of what the incarnation means as articulated by somebody else long ago. And our job is simply to repeat it so that you can enter that idea of what the incarnation is. And that's such an interestingly different idea of the great artist, of the role of the artist. And people get icons wrong, don't they? Especially... Give a formal conversation about iconoclasm is that people think that they pray to these things, and that's really not what's happening not in, at all. In, in prayer in in the Russian and Greek tradition. No, I mean, it's so much through the through the objects, um, and which is why I think so many of the objects are not really of great artistic quality, because that's not the point. <laughs> it's not the point, is it? No, not at all the point. And yet they have a. I guess the word is aura, <laughs> you know, but they have a they have a, a quality that even sort of fine religious art might not have. It's really interesting to know what that is. They have something else which I think is the I think because they're replicated, they create a community of people looking at them, which is very consciously felt. You know that the icon that you're looking at is effectively the same image as the one that other people had in their houses uh, all over the world and have had for centuries. So in looking at your icon at home, you are part of a community of people who have looked at the same icon. And that's a very remarkable thing. And that's very real. It's like all knowing the same hymn. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the, there's a community created simply by all 
engaging in the same in the same way on the same route to an understanding of what divine presence is and i think that idea of the community of the image is something that the icon develops in a way that the western church has never never managed or wanted but there is a democratizing uh, quality to just uh, the the sort of religion's material culture um you know people's houses and this the, the fact that you know you don't need to be particularly learned uh you you don't need to uh be a great scholar that this has as an immediacy which is why there's a sort of populism about religious art exactly and it's a very it's the same power and democratization that you get i think in the in the hymn singing tradition that once the theology has been put into rhyming verse and a catchy tune it is it's a winner it's everywhere yes and everybody shares it and everybody has <clears throat> it on equal terms and that's uh, an extraordinary phenomenon and i think a very empowering one i, I, I think it be i mean it's been done of course but the i think it's worth thinking more deep i would like to think more deeply about what that actually meant for instance to the african american slave uh, community how what what it meant to them to be able to possess that theology on their own in a group without clergy without any constraint giving them membership of a community access to a community a shared dignity a shared hope that very things couldn't have done because they weren't allowed to have things the only i think a shared song <laughs> could do that And Did you have an object that was that, that represented? Well, we've we we've we have one of the Lutheran, the first Luther hymn book, the first book of hymns right. that Luther wrote and composed the music for, because that I think is where that tradition begins. I mean, it's one of Luther's great insights that if you really want to get the word of God from out of the control of the clergy and into the hearts of the people, that's the way you do it. I've always thought that uh, that the theology of hymns is far more important than any sermon I might ever come up with or anything like well, that. Exactly, it's inscribed exactly. deeper into people's consciousness. I mean, sometimes the theology is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of like gnashing my teeth exactly. when I'm listening to some of the rubbish that we sing. But, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, is, it can be very disturbing. But um, I mean, one of the, the the example we took in the book was Amazing Grace. Oh, you see, that's a beautiful. Which. Uh, has such an interesting history yes. of being sung as part during the Civil War by the Northern troops, um, and of course in the Civil Rights Movement. Um, But and, the story of the person who wrote it. The story it, of the person who wrote it. John he, Newton the, and his. The, is it Newton? It is Newton. It is Newton. It? Yeah, the the yeah. slave trader who then is uh, tr is converted and redeemed. I mean, I have a, my congregation is is I guess black majority uh, church the elephant at castle and when we sing amazing grace which we do quite a lot the idea that this was written by a slave trader and you know coming coming from Ghana and with the slave pits and all that sort of stuff it's quite an extraordinary thing for people to sing that so enthusiastically it is and uh, it 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 shows the power of the of 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 of, of the hymn to create a community. I mean, what, what we were trying to do in the exhibition and in the book was really to talk above all about how 
religion creates a sense of community and identity because the the reason really for doing all this was the fact that it's quite clear that religion is once again politically centre stage all around the world. 50 years ago, I don't think anybody would have expected that to happen. But we can't understand the world as it is now unless we try to understand why but you mean Islam matters. Do you? Do you mean Not Islam? just Islam. Um, Islam is, of course, the, the example everybody thinks of uh, immediately. We all think of immediately. But um, in, in contemporary India, the politics of India are being transformed by demands by many that Hinduism be acknowledged as the basis of all real Indian identity. So there's, a, there's and a, the same quite... in Russia. Russia has become again an orthodox country. Putin is, I think, without question, the most religiously observant European political leader. <laughs> and what is what this is about, I think, is very much the power of religion to create an identity and a community, and above all, an idea of hope for the future, which the other political traditions have faltered in to say the least. So it's really interesting you say hope there because I think that's very important. But m many people listening to this, when you talk about India and when you talk about Russia and, and their sort of religious revival, as it were, will think that both of those religious revivals have a sort of right-wing valence, have a politically sort of charged... I say right-wing. It's, it's the wrong... You know, they don't entirely map, but you understand a sort of more... They have a nationalist valence, yes. um, which I think is a separate thing. Right, yes, um, yes, yes, that's right. Um, uh, because it's about identity. Yeah. And in both cases, the in Russia, it's Putin and the government who are asserting that the real identity of Russia is an orthodox one. Um, in uh, India, it's not the government as such, but uh, the 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 members of the of, of the, the extreme members of the BJP. But that's about the need to create communities of identity, um, because I think in large measure the general the the, the great movements of the twentieth century of a whole society moving towards a juster, different future have have faltered. And a narrative of hope is what people need. I want to park hope because I want to talk about yes. hope again. But if I can just keep on a little bit more about this nationalism and so forth, because, you know, in the West, we we have the sort of a broadly sort of liberal, uh, individualistic type of uh, story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Uh, but this nationalistic one, this group one you're talking about, it cuts against that sort of you know, individualistic yes. enlightenment type of tradition. If I could, to leave the nationalist part aside, I think this is one of the one of the great difficulties. I think is that for Western Europeans, it's very hard to understand the idea of an individual finding fulfilment as a member of the group and not as an individual. That the we comes before the I. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all the and particularly in the last fifty years. All the great advances of freedom, liberty, have been individual ones to enable the individual to fulfill themselves as they choose. Uh, the notion of that fulfillment being necessarily in the context of a community and a continuing community with a future from which a sacrifice of the individual is required uh, has receded. And I think that's really significant because it makes it very hard for most Western Europeans and 
the Western world to understand why religion is so powerful, why that idea of the community, which will go on after the individual life, why that, why that is so powerful. We've lost the notion of the individual fulfilling themselves in that way. So, so what you're saying is very interesting here because the way in which many people tell a story about why we might find it more problematic or difficult to understand some of these um, objects and images is that we've become more secular. So there's this sort of narrative of secularization. We don't believe in it anymore. But actually what you're saying is it's not quite that. It's also about this relationship between the individual and the group. I think it seems to me there are two aspects of the, <clears throat> two aspects of the post-Enlightenment uh, d- traditions in, in, in Europe. The first was, and they saw, who, they saw religion, first of all, as an attempt to explain the universe. Yes. And that, of course, has been dismantled by science. Yes. We don't need religion to explain earthquakes or whatever. Um, and I think there was a general assumption that that was the key function of religion. <laughs> what that neglected was the other aspect of religion as being about not explanation, but about meaning <laughs> and the meaning of existence. And that the European societies have really failed to address in particularly since the great communal social movements following the Second World War. As they've receded, the individual has become more significant and the idea of the community receded. And the in sociological terms, it's the great book uh, Bowling Alone. Yes, yes, of course. And yes. in spiritual terms, it's the same thing. Yes, right. But Bowling Alone spiritually is not religion. <laughs> It's something else is is the argument of the book. Of course, you talked about Russia before, and of course, you know, throughout the twentieth century, one of the great experiments with religion, I guess, was was Russian was communism, and and one of the things about the exhibition are some fantastic images, and they're in your book of the spaceman. Uh, there's a fantastic image of a spaceman all dressed in sort of Soviet red space suit um, with the sort of the sort of smirk on his face as he's flaking in the heavens, saying, "There is no God up here." Or, there exactly, is no God. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. 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 So it's a wonderful image. Yes, it is. Uh, of the, the the triumph of science. And there is Yuri Gagarin in heaven, and there's no God. Yes. Um, and yet what happened after that is uh, this explosion of religion in, 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 uh, in post-Soviet Russia. And particularly, it was led by the state, by the, by the, by the rulers. And I think the, 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 the phenomenon of orthodoxy, the return of orthodoxy in Russia, and particularly as practiced by, by, by President Putin, is particularly interesting because... The, after the, the loss of the Soviet Empire and the reduction of Russia to Russia, what this does is it replaces a communist ideal which had to be for everybody, for the whole world, for all the Soviet Union, with a tradition which is exclusively Russian. It differentiates Russia from the Muslim republics that are now independent. Uh, that's a separate world. And... No less important, it differentiates Russia from the Catholic Hungary and Poland, Lithuania, and the Protestant Estonia and Latvia. Russia is separate, but Russia has a special place, a special claim, if you like, on Belarusia and Ukraine. That sort of mother Russia, <laughs> and Serbia. broader Russia type of... So that reorienting 
that reintroduction of orthodoxy as the defining attribute of Russianness actually gives you a foreign policy. And it's it's a foreign policy completely consistent with what we've seen in the last 20 years. And I don't see the revival of religion in Russia as principally coming from the people. Right, so although they have, although top they have, down rather than bottom up. Although they have, of course, responded, and there was immediately a great response. Clearly, there was always a great desire to have churches open and used, but the rebuilding of the cathedral in Moscow, which Stalin dynamited, and these were government decisions. The... So you're knocking out one of my fantasies here that somehow religion survived somehow in the in the in the ground and uh, when it was allowed it sort of bubbled up from oh, no, the bottom no, and I it, it so... did it did survive of course it did and I mean, very interestingly the I mean uh, in in the twenties and thirties after the Bolshevik Revolution as the, the 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 Soviet state tries to destroy religion they Lenin says you just have to kill the priests. Yes. And churches are closed, used for other purposes. And great progress is made in destroying the church until the German invasion of 1941. Yes, and they need them again. They need them again. And that's where your thesis is absolutely vindicated, that the the the, the deep religious convictions of the Russian people were so strong that they'd survived a generation of, 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 of oppression. And they had to be harnessed for the great patriotic war. But I don't think, what and that's clearly part of what we're seeing now, but what we see now wouldn't happen unless it was also right. uh, the return to a Tsarist view. Because what it does also is, of course, it elides those whole 80 years of communism. Yes. It's as though they hadn't been. Yes, yes, yes. Just... Shifting away from the sort of sociological and back to the relationship between religious and art, I mean, one of the things that always interests me about the uh, about the sort of natural bedfellowsness of of the two is something about, and maybe this is more about art, visual, I mean, paintings, but the need to take time. So the need that um, you sit before something and you have to give it, give it time that it doesn't immediately. Um, unfold itself to you. You have to wait on it. Somehow, wait on its meaning and its and that sense of. And when you when you, see, when you go to art galleries and you see people sitting and looking, and they that that act of sitting before a painting, even if it's a set, even if they're sitting in the Rothko room, there is a sense of prayerfulness. Something about that, about that sort of act of sitting and waiting. I think that's right. It is, I mean, it's not accidental that contemplation has the double meaning uh, of looking as well as uh, reflecting. Um, And that need for time is something I think that we know in the painting tradition. It's also, of course, what the calligraphic tradition does in Islam. It takes effort to read to see the words, you know the words, but they've been transformed. And it's rather like listening to polyphonic music. (laughs) You know the words, but they're repeated, they're reversed. So it requires attention. It requires attention. In the broadest sense. In the broadest sense, and time. And above all, as you said, that opening. You need to open yourself to the experience. And it's summed up for me by better 
than than he was for by, by Iris Murdoch, uh, talking about visiting the National Gallery, and saying the great thing, it's in the the the, the her novel The Bell, that when you know a picture well, when you sit and look at it, you can ultimately, if you give it enough time, confront it with a dignity that it itself has conferred. <laughs> and that in that dialogue between the spectator and the work of art, or the listener and the great piece of music, there is a dignity is acquired <laughs> and transmitted. You want, one of, I imagine one of the joys of being the director of the British Museum is when the public goes and you can wander around there on your own and you can uh, you can you can spend some time and you can sit in front of something and uh, it's the great joy of the house um uh, even more beginning the day there's something very i used to try every day to start with spending some time usually because, uh, either in ancient egypt or in ancient mesopotamia there's Nothing like spending some time with Ashurbanipal or Ramesses II <laughs> to be reminded that really... You're a small budget, dot in. <laughs> yeah, and the budgetary problems and the next government spending round um, can't really be that important. Exactly <laughs> um, right. It does locate you in time. And I think there's one thing we tried to show in the, in the exhibition book. One of the great things that religion does is change the dimension of time. It situates people in a different scale of time. And that, I think, is another reason why the Western world at the moment finds it difficult. <laughs> but it forces you to consider your links to the dead and to the unborn. And for me, one of the most, sorry, one of the great joys of this, of course, is working with colleagues in the museum who know the collection in areas that I know nothing about. And the the, to discover that the Peruvian mummies in the British Museum, that the Peruvians mummify very easily like the Egyptians, but it's much more fun being a Peruvian mummy than an Egyptian one because you get taken out. The body you, gets taken out? Yes. Oh, right. And uh, so if you have a distinguished ancestor, a wise ancestor, you bring the mummy out when you have important discussions so that they're at the table with you. Oh, like um, John Stuart, uh, like Jeremy Bentham, Bentham. Like Jeremy Bentham, Jeremy Bentham exactly. in, in, the, in, in, the, in, in University College. Yeah. And you have the wisdom of the past with you. But that also means that you have the spirits of the unborn and you take your important decisions in the context of a community of belonging which goes far beyond one generation. You see, this is absolutely right. I mean, I say to people, I mean, I have a small church and sometimes we'll have evening prayer and only a few people come and you can feel, oh, this is a little bit dispiriting with just, just two or three people. And and actually, you know, you, you suddenly, sometimes you suddenly be aware that actually you're a part of a, a great company, a, a great vast company of, you know, of people going back on time and... And and just sort of metaphysical, you know, angels and archangels, whatever you. But but you are part of something so much bigger, and suddenly it isn't two or three people. Precisely, and I think that's what's so interesting: the, the rituals that have been evolved to affirm this, and how it then changes people, because it does change you. If it you definitely think, does, and it is the it's part of the uh, the company of the saints, 
uh, is a very real notion. Isn't and that's it? what I mean, in a way, not necessarily that's, the saints, um, but but you're a part of human history in this sort of in the British Museum. That's exactly what you're. That, what, what you're contemplating well, the when you're in that sense, Mesopotamia. Yes, a, absolutely, and, you're, you're part of the same, the same, the, the, a continuum, and a little part of a continuum. I, I have to and say, when we talk about that's just reminded me. When I talk, my favourite object is the Cyrus cylinder. That for me is the. Uh, um, it's just I, I look at it and I feel in awe of the. I don't know if you can say something to people about the Cyrus cylinder. You're probably the best best that's, person. <laughs> I'd love to hear you talk about it, it. Well, it is a very remarkable object. It's about the size of a rugby ball, and it's made of clay. And so it's not exactly a cylinder. It's like a rugby ball. It's the shape of a rugby ball. Um, and uh, it's clay tablet, clay inscribed. And what it is, is the uh, decree that Cyrus, king of Persia, made when he conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., so if you like, it's the morning after Belshazzar's feast. Um, yeah. God has destroyed the kingdom yes. of the Babylonians and given it into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. And Cyrus decides that what he will do is allow all the captive peoples who have been taken prisoner and enslaved in Babylon to return to their home and their temples and to take with them the cult objects, their gods. And it's an extraordinary statement. Including the Jews, of course. And, of course, the, in, for, for we know of this because, of course, um, for the Jews, this allowed them to return to Jerusalem and start building the second temple. Uh, and the Jews, then Isaiah talks of Cyrus as guided by Jehovah, even though he didn't know it. <laughs> so Cyrus is incorporated into the Jewish yes. religious yes, tradition. Must be the only um, Iranian that gets a good press. In. Uh, <laughs> well, is that? Um, and uh, it is, and of course, it's because of this. It was found, it was excavated in Babylon um, in the middle of the 19th century. And it is, of course, a supremely important document for the history of the whole Middle East. Because, first of all, it's the document that allowed the Jews to build the Second Temple and return from exile. But it's also, of course, a document of the way the Iranians, the Persians, thought about empire. And for a great deal of the last two and a half thousand years, all the area between the Bosphorus and the Indus has been controlled by the Iranians. And their notion of themselves, not only as the natural imperial power, but as a good imperial power that allowed peoples to be themselves that set the oppressed free and allowed them to have their own languages, their own traditions, their own religions, provided they prayed for the king, they still see themselves as the heirs to that tradition. And it, so that object has a huge significance in Iran. Every Iranian schoolchild learns about the Cyrus Cylinder. And when the British Museum lent it to Tehran some years ago, it was seen by well over a million people. Wow. And caused an enormous national debate about how Cyrus stood in Iranian history because he's pre-Islamic. So when, when did that go to... When did that 2010. Go to when, was the, when was the liber, more liberalising mood in Iran? That, that well, sort of around that it, time? Well, it? It, was, it, it, was, it was around that time. This was already in, in Ahmadinejad's uh, time. Right. Uh, so it was before the the, the, the current liberalisation, but but it was a very remarkable moment. 
Um, the Iranians had lent to the British Museum and the trustees decided that we should lend something of equal significance in return. And it was a remarkable moment. And it is still a, a document. We then, after that, we lent it to the United States because there's a big Iranian community there. But it was also, of course, very important. A lot of our colleagues in museums in the United States wanted to present it as the evidence for a view of Iran, which most most people in the West don't, don't, don't learn at university, don't learn at school, that there is another Iranian history. And that whereas the European tradition coming out of the Greek one is about individual rights, the Iranian tradition is about the rights of the communities. And that this is a very important tradition and has shaped the Middle East. The Iranian Empire, those boundaries of the Iranian Empire, Bosphorus, Nile, Indus, Caspian, that is it's what we still call the Middle East. <laughs> and they're all shaped by that experience. So the Cyrus Cylinder is a very big thing. Yeah, well, I've... I always feel I'm in the presence of something oh, yes. sort of uh, really quite special when I exactly. So, I guess I guess it's right to end this uh, conversation by just we're in a, a period where religion is uh, something that puzzles many people in the in the West, uh, in this country in particular, and others too, and you know people's uh, people's understanding of all this stuff is is diminishing and um, what what do we lose when we when we when we sort of fail to understand uh the role of this sort of religious tradition in our lives i think we've we've lost of course the ability to read texts as poetic truths rather than literal history and that's a very serious loss the reduction of that of our reading to literal truth, historical truth, which you either accept as an act of faith or discard as something that is demonstrably uh, imaginary. Uh, that's a great impoverishment. And that's a fairly recent development, certainly the, the last century or so. Um, but much more than that, we've lost, I think, the idea that all religions are about an ideal of society that might be attained in the future, that perhaps once existed, but might exist in the future. And the accomplishment of that future will depend in large measure on us. It's about a society getting through. And that's the hope thing, I guess. And that's where hope comes. And we have lost that idea because generally in the West, because the Enlightenment attack on religion was on the oppression of the church, both state Protestantism and papal Catholicism, uh, the, the the evident oppression of that, the discarding of the of of, of the, the of, of the metaphysical structure as demonstrably untrue or unbelievable, lost completely the idea that this was about an ideal society. I mean, I can tell um, that that's important to you by the way in which. I mean, the, the, the final thing in the exhibition and in your book, um, it, well, I don't know if it's exactly the final thing in your book, but the Lampedusa Cross, yes. which um, the Lampedusa Cross was uh, this extraordinarily beautiful 
uh, for me, beautiful. And I guess I mean that in the very broadest sense. Uh, cross that was made out of the boat in which many uh, people who'd crossed over from Africa to Italy seeking salvation, I guess, in the, uh, uh, a new life. Um, but through all the hardships of, you know, that they'd had and and then the, the the guy from a carpenter from Lampedusa made a cross out of the boat in which they travelled across. It's extraordinarily moving. It is the most wonderful symbol. And he, taking the wreckage of the boat in which over three hundred Eritreans and Somalians drowned, um, and just putting two bits of wood together to make the cross, he wanted to give them something. And the only thing he could give them was a symbol of hope out of suffering. And even though many of them weren't Christian, they could all understand that this was the gift of hope and that out of destruction, you could hope to build a new life. And that's, that idea of a society that can renew itself and become what it ought to be, that understanding of all religions essentially being about that uh, is, I think, something that the West has really lost sight of, except, I think, in the way this country, at least, celebrates Christmas. I think you could argue that Christmas, as it now is, is an almost perfect demonstration of a religious feast. For a moment, the whole of society stops and thinks about what it ought to be. And for a moment... The society must include everybody. The poor must be looked after, the homeless sheltered, the hungry fed. And for a moment, everybody is willing to make a sacrifice to achieve that. And it's much charitable, more inclusive. Charitable, than... rising, charitable givings are enormous. And it's totally inclusive. Nobody can be excluded. And for a brief moment... My wife is you, Jewish and she loves Christmas. <laughs> exactly. And it's become... That's why, it's, that's why I think it is a real demonstration of what a religious festival can be and ought to be. Um, and even without a religious superstructure or a metaphysical superstructure, it is a great religious feast. It's, what, it's about what a society ought to become and demanding something from everybody, which everybody, effectively, or most people, are willing to give. And for a moment... We are what we ought to be, and we remind ourselves of that. And that seems to me what all religious rituals are about. And for a moment, the community of the whole country is affirmed. And that's very rare. Other European countries don't use Christmas in this way. This is the great gift of Dickens, the greatest, to my mind, social theologian <laughs> that this country has had. Um, I mean, what Dickens does to Christmas, putting it into time, putting it into an affirmation of an entire community um, in a way that the whole country can grasp. And you can't just make these things up. Just, just, no. just, just. I mean, I, I was very interested in Grace and Perry's uh, recent programmes. I don't know if yeah, you saw yeah, exactly, any of them. Exactly, exactly. Uh, about uh, reinventing rituals for death and for marriage and for as it were, baptism, rites of passage. And I, I love Grayson Perry. I think he's terrific and so forth. But there's something there's something you just can't quite do it. Um, just, uh, you, you know, a, a sort of like something that's just, just for you. And uh... Because the essential point of those rituals, and it brings us back to time 
and that link with those who've gone before and those who will come is precisely that you are doing the same thing as they did. And every family Christmas, we all remember our childhood Christmases with people who are now dead. <laughs> and we all know that there will be family Christmases and we're dead. And that that group will go on. And you, that's only because you're all doing the same thing. <laughs> and the ritual, that's the value of the repeated ritual. Yeah. That it gives you your place in a story that goes far beyond you. Yeah. It's why when people come to church and they, you know, you know, they sort of they get it when they don't use any service books anymore. And they don't use any service sheets because they're a part of that. They know that ritual and they've become a part of something that's bigger than themselves. Exactly. And that's what all this is about, isn't it? It's allowing the individual to find their proper place in a narrative that is about hope. There's a, there's a line in, uh, I think it's Wallace Stevens in The Man with the Blue Guitar, says but play you must attune beyond us yet ourselves and it's a I, it's exactly I, that I, I really like that both beyond us yet ourselves and that exactly. for me is a sort of deeply religious sort of exactly uh, exactly neil mcgregor thank but, you very much for talking to me charles fraser thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>